CIUT 89.5 FM. Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT FM. Well, good morning and welcome to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're glad that you're joining us. I'm Christine Smaller. I'm the temp here at the Rad Rev Show. Uh, Sherry DeNovo is away right now at a press conference and I am so looking forward to the show here. Uh, we have two fabulous guests with us today. Tom Hooper is going to be talking to us first, but we also have Jeffrey Dale with us, and we are so glad to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's so good to, to have you. So Tom Hooper, you're a professor in the Department of Equity Studies at York University and a historian of the Toronto bathhouse raids. And so I thought maybe we'd start there, if we may. Um, you know, as we were chatting earlier, I told you I was living in the village in the early 80s and remember that time very, very vividly. Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about that, that event, that era? Yeah, it's often uh, labeled as an event, but it was actually a series of events. That's true, know? that's true. So what we're talking about is on February 5th, 1981, 200 police officers in Toronto descended on four gay bathhouses and arrested over 300 men, charging them with criminal offenses due to their sexuality. Uh, and this was seen as sort of this big moment in the history of the city, a turning point, if you will. But my work has tried to focus on the fact that this raid in February 1981 was part of a, a longer series of raids right. that went all the way back into the 60s uh, and extended until 2004. So uh, this is a, a part of a longer history of criminalization, but it's a very interesting moment to study because of the reaction. So there was this organization that was formed earlier in the 70s called the Right to Privacy Committee, and their purpose was to resist these raids. And so when this massive raid occurred in 1981, they were ready to respond. So the following night, February 6, 1981, you might remember. I do. Uh, thousands <laughs> of people went into the streets and, you know, demanded justice uh, with, with uh, a great deal of rage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do remember, um, I mean, it was horrific. It was absolutely horrific what the police did, the violence, uh, the violence uh, that happened. And it's, I think back now, and I think like, so well organized. So before social media, before the internet, before even WhatsApp, this incredibly, you know, organized uh, groups that were able to, to respond to it. So when I was reading this week about it, I was reading about how there was a rampage and it was quite violent. I don't really remember it like that, but you have some more information you want to share with us. Yeah, I mean, I describe it as a <laughs> night of rage because people were really pissed off. For sure. Uh, I promised before we came on I wouldn't swear, so I'm not gonna. <laughs> I won't repeat the chants that they gave, but but they they were swearing in the street. The chants were full of f bombs and true. all this other stuff. So f u fifty two was the main uh, chant. So this was uh, fifty two to 
division was the police station responsible for the raids. So this was a, an angry protest. Uh, it has been characterized as a riot, but I think that's probably a little bit extreme. Uh, there were some incidents. So, you know, there was uh, a couple of uh, queers stood on top of a police car and urinated <laughs> on the window. There were a few trash cans set on fire. A TTC streetcar was... Uh, you know, the windows were bashed in. Uh, but otherwise, the, the activists that were marshalling this protest, they had been seasoned through the 1970s, through those yeah. struggles before. And so they, they kept it pretty focused and uh, made sure that the rage was channeled in directions that would be uh, politically advantageous as, uh, instead of, say, torching the whole city. But I will say this, that, that protest on February 6, 1981, at the very end, uh, after they left 52 Division, they stormed up University Avenue. They approached the front doors at Queens Park. Mm -hmm. They were running, thousands of people running, and the police couldn't catch them. And the marshals that I spoke to at the back of the protest could see the front doors of Queens Park going in and out. That crowd was about to burst through the front doors at Queens mm -hmm. Park, and who knows what would have happened <laughs> had they got through. Uh, a, a line of police uh, eventually separated them. Um, so it could have turned into a riot, but I'm right. not sure I would quite categorize it. Maybe we could call it a Canadian a riot. A Canadian riot. Sure. I love that. I love that. And I love how you are connecting it back to, you know, the protests and marches that happened before. For example, like even going back to the Vietnam War, where um, there's definitely a lot of F-bombs in the chance then, too. So how effective do you think that that protest was? Yeah, well, just like the raids, the protests, was, it was, wasn't just sing, one single protest. Yeah. Uh, February 20th, 1981, so a few weeks later, again, 3,000 queers went out into the streets. And I think this is where we really see the effectiveness here, is that that protest on February 20th brought together several groups that were opposed to police violence. Right. So, you know, uh, black civil rights activists mm -hmm. stood side by side with queers, lesbians, um, uh, sex workers, uh, you know, people with the International Women's Day Committee. Yeah. There was a labor activists. There was a huge coalition that came together at that protest that uh, sent a strong message. Our communities will not tolerate this. Now, you'd yeah. think that this would tell the police, okay, we should maybe not raid these bathhouses anymore. Right. But police have a tendency to not learn lessons very well or very quickly. Right. So the police actually raided the baths again in June 1981. And again, thousands of people went out into the streets. And that protest was actually the catalyst for the creation of Pride Toronto. Okay. So, so now we have Pride that's celebrated in June 1981 because of those raids against bathhouses, because of that resistance to police violence and that broad coalition that had been created that year. Right. So I think it's so important for us to understand our own pride history here in Toronto. I mean, we know about New York and the States. Do you want to explain a little bit more on how that transformed into Pride Toronto and a little bit about how it's been over the decades? Yeah, if, if Sherry were here, Sherry DeNovo was at the very first sort of Pride celebration, which was in the early 1970s, 1971. That's right. Yeah, we've all seen the picture. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic and, picture. And, and Sherry's very insistent that we not say Pride started in 1981 because <laughs> right. she remembers it before. And uh, I very much respect that. So Pride celebrations existed before, but they were always in August. Okay. okay. And the purpose was to kind of uh, celebrate the first protest uh, that was held in Canada in August 1971 to protest the, the 1969 criminal code reform. 
They said this wasn't good enough, our criminalization continued, so they protested against it. So every August they kind of commemorated that first protest. But right. in 1981 things were different. Because of the actions of police, because of how violent things were, it kind of was a throwback to the raid on the Stonewall Inn in New York City yeah. in 1969. And that was in June. And so the protesters that year in 1981, they said, we're going to move the Pride celebrations in Toronto from August to June so that we coincide with the Stonewall resistance. Right. Because that's what this movement is. To sort of lead to an international kind of movement and solidarity with the... Uh, with organizations, and that's wonderful. Jeffrey, I'm going to bring you in here just for a minute because uh, I heard that you wrote an opera based on the Toronto bathhouse raids, and I, I don't think that we can miss hearing a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and Tom just reminded me of it when he told me what his area of study was. It was in uh, university. We had to write a 15-minute opera, and I chose to write it about that experience. And I think a big part of it was when I was coming out to hear that people fought and resisted for against what um, what was clearly oppressive tactics mm -hmm. was something that was completely new to me. Like I grew up in a very small town in Ontario of 1,200 people. I think it's now 1,400 people. <laughs> right. And uh, to hear that there was this crowd of people who were larger than my hometown right <laughs> who were right, yeah. <laughs> who are all standing up for this level of care respect and dignity um so I remember writing it I, it was probably quite awful like I don't think I ever <laughs> want a human being to see it oh. but um yeah I remember it being a big part of my formation of both my own political activism but also just of being okay with myself wow wow Huge impact, huge impact. It yeah, is a, it's a this. great story, and it's yeah. ripe to be told uh, because not enough people have heard it. So anyone out, any filmmakers or opera writers out That's there, right. we, need, we need more content right. based. It's a great story, so I encourage people to disseminate it, get it out there. Yeah, it needs to be revisited, you know, every generation at least, and, you know, we're a couple generations from there. So when you, so I understand in 2018 and 2019, um, you were looking into some funding for Pride Toronto uh, that went in and that was specifically to, correct me if I'm wrong, specifically the funds were meant to help celebrate the decriminalization of homosexuality that took place in 1969. And you were intrigued because you knew about the bathhouse raids in 1981, the continued um, arrests, the criminalization of, of homosexuality. Um, but so tell us a little bit about that, what what happened in those intervening years, but then you also found something else when you were looking into the records. Yeah, because because I was a historian of the bathhouse raids, I, I looked into this so-called decriminalization. I'd heard this so many times, you know, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. In 1969, Canada supposedly decriminalized homosexuality. Well, that, how then do you have 300 men being arrested in 1981 and all through the 70s and 80s and beyond? Well, I looked into it and I found that the 1969 decriminalization is a myth. Yes, in the bedrooms of the nation, it was decriminalized, but it remained a crime everywhere else. Wow. So I don't think I knew that. I, I feel 
some shame attached to not understanding that. So yeah. say more about that. So it's, you know, when we look at what happened in 1969, they didn't remove any laws from the criminal code. So all of the laws that were gross indecency, buggery, indecent acts, body houses, they all remained on the books. So instead of removing them, they added this exception. They said, okay, if you commit these crimes in a bedroom and there's only two people and no one sees you, then you're okay. Right. But everywhere else, so if you're holding hands walking down the street, if you're kissing in a park, if you're in a bar or a bathhouse, it's still a crime. And wow. police used that to continue their criminalization. In fact, when we look at the evidence, the number of people who were criminalized after 1969 went up big time. Oh, my gosh. Like you're talking you know, thousands of people being arrested at various bars and bathhouses through the 70s and 80s. How does that translate to decriminalization? So I was looking at this because in 2019, the federal government was spending millions of dollars to celebrate this, this myth. And uh, right. I looked into the people who got funds for this and I found Pride Toronto. And I thought this is, this is particularly a betrayal. Uh, I mean, all the queer organizations should know better, but Pride Toronto especially because their history, their, their founding year was in response to this mass criminalization event in 1981. So, I, I saw this as a betrayal of history, and so I was intrigued as a historian. I started looking more into the documents. I s filed access to information requests, and quickly my investigation was no longer about myths of history. Uh, right. I found you know, fraud and forgery uh, in the documents that I uncovered. And by, let me just explain what I mean by sure. forgery. In order to obtain these grants from the federal government, Pride claimed they had these partnerships with various organizations, including, say, the Toronto District School Board and the Assembly of First Nations. Pride Toronto took their letterhead, their signatures, doctored fake letters, sent those letters to the Department of Canadian Heritage, and in exchange, received these grants. Wow. And there has been no uh, transparency or accountability uh, about this since I raised these issues a year ago. Uh, and I think that's a huge problem. Um, we've, we've crossed a, a, a boundary here between, okay, you've betrayed our history to now, you know, you're misappropriating funds, you're doctoring letters, you're engaging in fraud. Uh, this is not okay. Um, and this is not acceptable. Right. And so what was it like when you uncovered that? It must have been... It was infuriating. Yeah. Uh, and it was infuriating on a number of le levels. You know, as a historian who'd spent so many years researching the bathhouse raids and thinking about all of the people who were caught up in those arrests and wondering how do they feel about these organizations selling out our history. Um, and then also thinking about, okay, how is it that we have organizations that are going to this length to doctoring fake letters in order to get government funds. This was never the intention of activists from the 70s and 80s. They never envisioned that this would be the result of their blood, sweat, and tears in the streets of the city of Toronto. And so I was infuriated, um, but I also felt burdened because I knew I was the only one who knew this. Yeah. And I had to get it out there. Um, and that, had, that was a struggle. <laughs> I'm sure it must have been devastating in in many ways so what was there a time when you were did, how, like how did you decide what to do with that information 
Well, when I realized, you know, among the groups that had been forged and, and fraud had been committed against, you know, that includes the Assembly of First Nations. It includes um, uh, world-renowned Cree artist Kent Monkman. They, right. they claimed they had a fully executed contract with him, who, by the way, would never paint a celebration of decriminalization in 1969. That is not, if you follow anything with Monkman's works, that is not at all uh, who he is. Jeffrey, you're nodding here. Yeah. yeah, just seeing his work at the ROM recently, right? That is not at all yeah. anywhere connected. No, when yeah. I saw the when I saw the claim that they had Monkman doing these works, I thought, oh, I gotta see these. You know, what do they have? What does he have Pierre Trudeau doing in these paintings? <laughs> but you know, when I reached out to the studio, um, Monkman Studio got back to us. We would never celebrate decriminalization. We don't know what you're talking about. Fully executed contract. So I this was. A, a betrayal upon betrayal upon betrayal. So they're basically using indigenous artists uh, in order to take this money. Um, and the other thing is they took the money and they used it for their own purposes. So they didn't use it to help these various communities that they were defrauding. Right. They took it and paid off their debt. They took it and paid their salaries. So, right. And the fact that the federal government hasn't done anything about this, you know, I've asked them, how did you miss all of this fraud and forgery. Something isn't right within the Department of Canadian Heritage and in the federal government. And now we have the federal government giving out millions and millions of dollars across the country to various queer organizations with no systems of accountability or transparency. These, these organizations, these queer organizations, they're not accountable to our communities and they're not accountable to their funders. Right. And this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, friends, if you're just joining us, this is the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm the temp, Christine Smaller, and we're, we're celebrating Pride Month here at the Radical Reverend Show, but we're also, we're, we're confronting some difficult issues here, and I'm so glad to have my guests, Tom Hooper and Jeffrey Dale. So, Tom, what was it like for you during that time? So can you just, can you paint us a picture? You were phoning, phoning people, writing emails, trying to get the press to, you know, get interested in this. Uh, yeah, it was a, a struggle um, because the, the media, they like really simple stories, <laughs> right? They don't, they don't. I was going to ask you to dumb this down for me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind. Oh, right, yeah. No, I, and I appreciate that. So I've, I've created a website. Uh, www.pridegrants.ca. You can check it all out there if you want right. to see. I've laid it all out. Um, so I've tried to disseminate the information as much as I can myself using my own skills and hope, hoping that I was le leaving enough of a bread tr breadcrumb trail right. that people would pick it up. And they have um, because it is very complex. There's a lot of grants. There's a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot of accusations. There's a lot of bad things that happened. So it has been a struggle. I put together a report about a year, over a year ago, yeah. that really uh, took off on Twitter and elsewhere. It really got this story into the news. Um, it forced Pride Toronto to respond, but that response was not adequate. So Pride hired uh, auditing firm KPMG right. to conduct a review. <clears throat> 
uh, that review found that Pride, uh, you know, they did not use the grant funds for their intended purpose. So that's what that report found. But and can I just stop yeah. you there? Sure. So that was kind of a vindication for you, I'm sure. Um, and then did things change in terms of how people were responding to what you were sharing? It was a huge vindication yeah. because it, it demonstrated to everybody that, you know, I wasn't just this, you know, uh, <laughs> prof who's off off his rocker, if you will. Um, no, but it was also frustrating because the report specifically says that they did not invest, they, you know, I brought to them, I was interviewed by KPMG and I showed them the fraud and forgery and yet the report says they didn't investigate it. So on the one hand, I was vindicated on the issue of misappropriation of funds, right. but they did not investigate the fraud and forgery. And to me, uh, this is a huge, you know, problem. Uh, this is a huge ethical problem that can't just be left there. And that's how it has been. It's just been left there. And any explanation as to why that that was not investigated? Well, I've struggled to get a response from the federal government. I've been working through various MPs, trying through my, you know, some connections I have. And basically what I've learned is that the government thinks that because KPMG did a review, that's good enough for them. Uh, they're going to move forward with Pride Toronto. They're not going to investigate the fraud and forgery. Wow. I'm hearing so much, you know, passion in your voice um, about, you know, the, the people who made it possible for Pride to exist today, you know, going back to, you know, 81, 69 and before all those incredible activists. Um, I just, I, I have to wonder, like, what, what, what is this like for you in terms of someone who loves their community and, and really wants to preserve and celebrate this extraordinary history, really, of activism that's now being marred? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, as, a, as a historian, I have, uh, like, that is my passion. And I have had my head in this for over a decade. And so it, I live it every day. Yeah. Um, but also, it's not just that. I, I'm a gay man who came to Toronto in his 20s. Uh, I attended my first Pride in 2008. I marched in Pride. I loved Pride. It yeah. was, I call it, you know, we, our whole friends got together, gay Christmas. It was, <laughs> it was so much fun every year. So just in terms of my own self and my own discovery, Pride means so much to me. Uh, yeah, I can see that. And so to yeah. have, to uncover this, uh, it's, yeah, it's too much. Yeah, sorry, Fred, I don't know if you're hearing that. It's it's convocation day at U of T, so um, unless those bells were tolling for you, Tom, perhaps, maybe, for, you know, to celebrate and affirm what you are, you know, your passion and love for, for Pride. Wonderful. Jeffrey, I wonder if you have any response to what Tom's been talking about? Well, the bells are playing simple gifts. So I think, Tom, one of the things that you've given us is a very simple gift today of the complexity of things that people bring in. Uh, just listening to you, it makes me even rethink the ways in which we in the church engage pride. Absolutely. And the ethics of it all. And what it has meant for so many of us, right? Like it was a place where we got to see community for the first time when I first moved to Toronto as well in my 20s. And yet this organization is doing things that are so unethical and so 
against the grain of what we have tried to be as a community of people. And so I'm grateful. I just looked up the website as we were sitting <laughs> It's a great here. website. Yeah, yeah, it's a great website. That you have taken that time. And I think one of the things that I'm quite grateful for is you put yourself in a place that is against the norm. Yeah. Like you're swimming upstream, like for a metaphor against the other salmon. And that's difficult. Yeah, I'm not uh, the biggest, uh, Pride Toronto is not the biggest fan of me. The folks there, yeah. uh, you know, I've had a chance to meet with them. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the relationship is not, uh, not good. It's not in good terms. Uh, I think the current leadership feels that, you know, they haven't, you know, they didn't do the fraud and forgery themselves, right. so therefore they're absolved. But, uh, you know, they engaged in the cover-up. They covered it up, and that's not okay. Uh, they have a responsibility to the community. Well, and Jeffrey and I are sort of smiling, I think, because, uh, you know, we in the church, we feel that way too, right? We have, we have clergy who say, this has nothing to do with me, this, you know, thousands of years of oppression, 200 years in Canada. But I think, you know, we feel responsible for our organization. We are members of it. We are leaders in our organization, and we have to both acknowledge and take responsibility for what has happened in the past. So I have one minute left. Um, what, and, but you're going to stay on with us, which we're so grateful. But what, to sum up, what would you like to say to the folks that are listening right now about your work, your journey? I, you know, I think that another pride is possible. Okay. That we're not stuck with corporate uh, pride that's, you know, dependent on government funding. That, you know, pride celebrations in the 70s and 80s. Oh my gosh, were, they were incredible. <laughs> and you know what? We didn't need millions of do dollars yeah. to do it. We didn't need to be giving the police hundreds of thousands of dollars to provide so-called security. We didn't need insurance companies breathing down our necks. It's, it's really absurd what pride has grown into. And I think people need to understand it doesn't have to be that way. And we can create a different pride. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Tommy. You're going to stay with us. This is the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM, and we'll be back after a musical break. I think we're going to hear some Donna Summers. Is that right, Riley? Awesome. See you soon.
Welcome back. Welcome back. It's the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And we are here with two guests who are talking about issues related to pride. And now we're going to focus on my second guest, the Reverend. The Reverend. How long has it been? How long have you been a Reverend? Oh my gosh, a week? A week? Oh, so yeah. So you have to <laughs> hear it all the day? time. A week and two days. You have to days. answer the phone. It's the days. Reverend. Yes, I came back to work and my Zoom has changed <laughs> and all my stuff. It was quite, quite a choice. The Reverend <laughs> Jeffrey Dale, who is an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada, a community educator, theater practitioner, harm reductionist, and author, and so much, much more. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us, Jeffrey. Thank you for yeah, having me. And congratulations. Me. We really should be congratulating the church on oh. your ordination, but congratulations. For those of you who don't know, the road to ordination is a long and winding and sometimes joyous, but sometimes difficult, mostly difficult uh, path. Now, Jeffrey, you have just run over here from Queen's Park, I believe. You want to tell us what you've been doing? Yeah, I had my very first press conference ever at Queen's Park. Congrats. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's a rite of passage or something, right? But we had 500, just over 500, actually, clergy from across the province of Ontario sign a uh, ecumenical Christian unity statement supporting to us LGBTQI people, and uh, the, it was specifically around the rise of hate and violence that is starting to occur. And there's a little bit of a fear that that onslaught is going to come to Canada during this month. Right. And um, so we wanted to engage as many people as we could in signing a unity statement saying we're here to care, to love, and one of the cool things about it is it's not just Toronto ministers signing it. We have ministers from all over the province. I shared today, like from Marathon to Ottawa, wow. from Capriol to Sarnia. And one of the really neat things I have to share is um, I grew up in a small town called Milverton, Ontario. And it wasn't the most progressive place <laughs> in Ontario when I was growing up, although there's some really great people there. But I remember growing up, several of the clergy being very anti-same-sex marriage mm -hmm. at that time and mm -hmm. hearing about it, hearing friends talk about it, hearing, um, hearing it in my own churches. And one of the ministers that signed is the new minister at the United Church in my hometown. Wow. And so it was just like, things do Hallelujah. change, right? Life does change and grow in so many great and wonderful ways. And yeah. So wow. it was really wonderful to have that. That's so great. So, and how did it come about? Yeah, that's a good question because I don't really know. Um, <laughs> Make something up, Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> no, don't. No, um, MPP uh, Kristen Wontam came to a few United Church clergy and said that this might be something that needs to go out. And the clergy together, we sort of drafted something. And then we just, as clergy, started putting it out to colleagues, and it just sort of snowballed, and it only started on about Thursday. Wow. So to have 500 signatures over the weekend was just impressive for us, especially with most clergy take Mondays off, That's right? true. So That's true. Yeah. That day there. Yeah. Great. Great. So I wanted to talk to you about where, like, what is the role of faith leaders in this kind of work? Yeah, you know, that's the great question, because I think one of the things that we often hear is the narrative that faith leaders are um, uh, these sort of homophobic, mm -hmm. anti-inclusive kind of people, and, and that does exist. But our presence as a 
queer and very obviously gay <laughs> minister. <laughs> I don't pretend like it's not obvious. I actually had a friend once ask me if my church knew I was gay, and I said I'd never <laughs> walked or talked in front of them, so they don't know. Um, but I think our role is to sort of, sometimes we can be those people out front against that hate for those that just cannot and should not have to put up with it. We can be that sort of wall, that bridge, that place to really be safety, uh, to be comfort, to seek to reduce harm in the lives of young people. I just, uh, before I took this position, I was working in ministry in Barrie, and I had about 20 young people, I never knew their names, never met them, that would call my cell phone every so often, who were afraid to come out wow. to their family, uh, were going through contemplations of uh, suicide, things like that. And they just needed to talk to a clergy that told them that God loved them, not because of who they are, right? And um, that should never happen. Never. For a young person. And it should never happen from a minister who is told there's far more scriptures talking about justice and love in the Bible than there are about hate for one's sexuality. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So talking about that, you know, sort of this biblical justification, I mean, we, we, we see it in the States, but we also see it here. And, you know, as a person who's just, you know, fairly recently relocated to a rural area from downtown Toronto, I grew up in downtown Toronto, so it was my first, my first experience in a very small village of 400. It's, very striking how um, the biblical narrative, the Christian, Judeo-Christian, but Christian narrative is really operational in how people think about themselves and other people. So what is it, what do you say when people say that? Well, the Bible says it's wrong. Well, you know, it's the interesting thing because the Bible may, some aspects of the Bible may say it's wrong, but the aspect of the Bible that is the most important is that there's the prophets speak out against the system that's actually wrong. Right. And so uh, even listening to Tom share his experience with uh, Pride Toronto, I think of those prophets that actually said to us, wait, 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 your first responsibility is to care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the stranger, the marginalized in your midst. And so... Every time, I never want to get into a scripture off because the thing I found about uh, those Christians is they are far better versed at scripture than I ever can be. I have the memory of a sand trap or something like that. Um, But when I look at the entirety of the Bible and I look at the entirety of what, like we, we call the spaces we worship sanctuaries. Right. And it's a ministry of reconciliation that we're called to, right? Yeah. I mean, that was Christ's ministry. So if we can't provide sanctuary for everyone, then what's the point of providing it for anyone? Absolutely. And I would say, I mean, I don't want to get into a proof texting war either because absolutely we're always going to lose against those who have the the index in their brain. But, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about sexuality really at all. And, you know, the, the texts that are used by right-wing conservative fundamentalists really are taken out of context, and they really don't apply to the situations that they're, you know, saying that, you know, prescribing certain sexual practices. They're about systemic issues for sure. Um, but, you know, the Christians that say that it's more important to, you know, prescribe how people behave 
then to share love are the ones that seem to have the loudest voices now. Well, yeah, and there's also this sort of narrative, and I'm sure everybody's heard it of hate the sin, love the sinner, (laughs) right? right? Like, I've always sort of made it very clear that my sexuality isn't my sin. I've done enough other stuff that can definitely be sin, and we won't get into that on this show or else we'll be here for the rest of the day. Well, we do have a little bit of time. (laughs) Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. (laughs) Well, um, no. Uh, But that whole sort of notion that somehow I was born as I am, is somehow sinful it, it, it is so preposterous to me it's so ridiculous it's this and it's biblically incorrect right right because you know humanity every human is made in the image of god yeah yeah and jeremiah starts with being told that he was uh fearfully and wonderfully made right, right? that we are no different in the way in which we're made uh, across the board we are just uniquely ourselves yeah. So did you, for you, did you grow up as a Christian? Did you grow up in a Christian environment? I grew up in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Okay. Uh, at that time, it was not an affirming church. Um, and then uh, it is today. And some of their members actually signed our statement, which right. is wonderful to see. Again, it's that piece of recognizing things can change as time develops. And it just sort of takes some of us sticking our necks out a bit further. Yeah. then we have to go into places where we're uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, and say things that people don't like. Yeah, yeah. and stand firm. So, Jeffrey, for you then, what was, you know, in terms of how you felt about God when you were growing up, what was mm. your relationship? Yeah. What were you told? What were the messages that you heard? I, so I did believe that God hated me. Oh, my gosh. Right? Like, I did yeah. believe that I was... And I, I don't know so much if it was in my own church as it was in my society and the right. community around me. Um, and so... I, I, But yet, there was always this fascination with church. I don't know mm-hmm. what it was. Um, it wasn't until I went to university and I went to interview at a church to be their organist because I can play the organ. Not as well as these bells, but wow. I can play the organ. <laughs> um and they actually, halfway through the interview, said, would you like to be our youth minister instead? And really? I went, oh, why not? <laughs> and then that just started a whole path of working in the church for the last 17 years, being in ministry. Um, but yeah, and, and it wasn't until I started engaging in the United Church that I even clued in that churches were involved in social justice. Yeah. 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 You know, we were talking, Just we just talked a little bit about you know pride in um, pride celebrations in areas outside big cities and you know seeing so in where I am in the you know great gray highlands so the Bruce Peninsula kind of area um, there are pride celebrations just starting so for example in Markdale last year was the first pride picnic and uh, in a lot of these areas it is the churches it's the clergy leaders um, not always but it is the churches that are providing certainly the space and sometimes the funding and also just the, the affirmation to go ahead and do this. So it seems like there's a role there for sure. Um, but it's also so hard to stand as a Christian person um, with all of the incredible organized hate that, that we are receiving 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I often wonder if we would be missed if we weren't in the Toronto That's the Pride question. Parade. Like, yeah. I feel like we're always stuck between TELUS and something else. Like, um, <laughs> we're in this weird sort of place. I think last year it was actually TELUS and something that was wearing green, probably a bank or something like that. But then I go to parades like uh, the Barry Pride Parade or the uh. Parade in Muskoka. And we make up a majority of the people yeah. there. And so it's sort of fascinating to sort of think about. And it's such a strong message. That message where it matters in those places. And that's why I was so glad to see in this unity statement that 500 people from not just Toronto. Yeah. Were across. Like, I want a young person to be able to go there and say, is my minister on here? And if not. I feel comfortable enough to go to their minister and say, why didn't you sign this? Yeah. Yeah. And so folks, yeah. check out, check out, how, how can people see that it's petition? On the Shining Waters Regional Council website. So that's shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca. And there's a button right on the homepage you click on and you go right to it. I asked them to make it as simple for someone like me who has no concept how technology works. Yeah, and I'm sure that that petition will get more airplay and press as well so people can check it out. I think it is important. And we have, maybe you want to just talk for a minute about um, Affirm, uh, which is an organization, uh, you know, United Church Organization, Arms Length Organization, because there's a website there where you can check out whether or not a church, if you feel like going to church, um, you can go on that website and see whether or not you'll be welcome. Yeah, so similar actually to what Tom was talking about earlier, over the 70s and the 80s, the United Church of Canada went through a huge process of understanding sexual orientation. Um, at that particular time, gender identity wasn't a right. focus, and it's always important, I think, to name that, that we didn't um, engage in that conversation until actually, I think, in the 2000s, really, when we had our first yeah. trans uh, minister want to be ordained. And um, But over that time, organizations, there was two different organizations that had developed, and they both have became what's called a firm united now. And Affirm United is an intentional process churches go through um, to be designated as an affirming space in the church. And I think it's affirmunited.ca. And um, I work with a lot of churches that are going through the process or have went through the process. And a big piece of what they discover is just exactly who and what they want to be in their community. Right. And that's kind of a wonderful thing to try to figure out um, what kind of space you want to be and how you want to present that space in your community. Yeah, and really what God is calling them to do in order to bring justice and peace to the world. And I find with the Affirm process too, it's that people, you know, people can be very well-intentioned. I don't need to tell the two of you that. They can be very well-intentioned and they don't realize the barriers that are in place that are, you know, preventing people from coming in. And I don't think they understand the history no. either. Like even and Tom talking so important, today, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm sitting here going, I am not even understanding all the historical pieces. And, and it's once somebody else lays that out for you, like I, I actually think historians are some of our greatest assets in our society because they're the ones that don't let us forget the things yeah. we want to forget. And that's Does that why make we sense, get upset. Tom? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I, can, I can jump in Please. Here, uh, on this. Is my, my mic on? I, uh, it is? Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, yeah I think uh, in after the days after the bathhouse raids in 1981, there was a call for an independent inquiry into the raids. 
and uh, a local minister, Reverend yeah. Brent Hawks That's from the right. Metropolitan Community Church, went on a hunger strike yeah. that lasted over three weeks, mm-hmm. uh, demanding an independent inquiry. And he, his speech at the protests was one of the most powerful and elicited the, the largest response from the crowd. So I think if you're um, a religious person, um, your faith base, you're in your churches, and, and you don't think that your church has a role to play in this issue and in this history, you're wrong. You're totally uh, wrong. You know, yeah. uh, and, and it needs to continue now. People in their churches and in their communities now need to understand that things can get worse. Yeah. Yeah. They don't always get better, and we need people to be coming out and supporting from from all of their all of our different various communities, including the faith-based community. Absolutely, um, thank you for that. Friends. I've always struggled with that. It gets better campaign because it, it it has gotten a lot worse for a lot of people. Yeah, but I'm sure you can understand those you know those 20 young people that were calling you on the phone. I mean, you do want to instill hope in people, mm-hmm. right? Without letting people off the hook in terms of shaping the future. Friends, if you're just joining us, we are talking here at CIUT 89.5 FM, the Radical Reverend Show. I'm getting a thumbs up for Riley. I know I often forget to do the station event identification, don't I? And we are talking about all sorts of important things. So when I was living in the village in the early 80s, um, it was a tumultuous time. And um, one of, you know, there's the AIDS, AIDS crisis. And people... People were just dying all around. My, my best friend, people died all around us. And uh, so I had grown, I had not grown up with any faith at all in a very atheist, actually communist home. And um, it was the faith leaders that came out. They were the only ones that would come out and touch bodies. They were the only ones that would, you know, show us how to, you know, use, take care of people. They were the ones that were on call 24 hours a day. And that planted an incredible seed of faith in me. I don't know if I would be a person of faith if I hadn't been a part of, like, it's hard for me to talk about even, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about. But so I really feel passionately that there is a role for faith leaders in, um, in, in all situations where there is oppression and marginalization yeah, I recently read a book. I cannot remember the title of it right now, but it's about the Catholic Church and its uh, priests and nuns and their response to the HIV/AIDS crisis in the early days. And it's a it's an American book, but it was in New York and San Francisco, where priests and nuns were the only ones going yeah. into rooms where AIDS patients were dying. And it it told this other story that you know, as these Catholic schools are banning pride flags and pride flag raisings right now i almost wish all catholic young people could read this book yeah to know that there is another narrative out there there was another way of being it's important to know our history isn't it yeah (laughs) yeah and that alternative history that is easily skated over unless you do the digging unless you really dig in there to find that piece of exactly what was happening on the ground yeah, not not everyone got that uh, that necessary service of of uh, spiritual service, especially those who were dying uh, of AIDS. My uncle was one of them. He was gay, lived in the Toronto Toronto's village, 
and he died in 1994. And leading up to his death, he did seek out um, spiritual guidance. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, he was not put in touch with a, a helpful resource there. Um, and, you know, sort of was made to feel as though the, the his, uh, his disease was from his, his own sin. Um, I'm so I, sorry, yeah. Tom. I want to say I'm so sorry yeah, that, that it, happened. But I know that that's not, there's, you know, the community at the time was providing those services. There were uh, queer-friendly uh, ministers who were doing these acts, as you said. Um, but but not everyone could access that. No. And so it just tells us how necessary that is to have the people going into the community like that um, and providing those resources because my uncle really would have benefited from it. Yeah. So I'm really thankful that there's folks like you um, who are in our communities who are willing to do this work, this social justice work, um, and, and helping people who are most in need because my uncle was one of them. And, uh, you know, for so many reasons, uh, he wasn't able to get uh, the, the health care he needed. But uh, I think we can do better. I think we can. I think we can. And I should say, of course, it wasn't just clergy that were caring for folks, but there was that spiritual care component. And at the time, there was so much, um, you know, virulent propaganda about, uh, you know, HIV and where it came from that, you know, really it would probably seem like a drop in a bucket, the more progressive and caring clergy, but it had an impact on those who experienced it. So we've got a couple of minutes left. So let's reimagine pride. Let's reimagine life, the world, Toronto, rural Ontario. What do you say, guys? Well, you know, I, I, even listening to I think we can do better, I think the reality is we should do better. Yeah. It's not even... We're called to know, do better. We, like, we have to challenge ourselves to hold ourselves accountable and to hold the systems in which we engage with accountable. Like... If we don't hold a mirror up to every sort of aspect of our life and our society, what are we doing? <laughs> like, yeah. what is that sort of purpose of life? And so, and how do we find unity without having to find conformity to everything mm -hmm. as well? Because I think that is the great diversity of life. Like, one of the things I always struggle with is when folks will say something like, be careful as soon as they find the gay gene, they're going to get rid of all the gay people. I've heard that sort mm -hmm. of statement. And I think that's not the diversity of life. <laughs> that's not the sort of, nobody would say a robin is the only bird we need to see. And nobody would say, I don't know, a shih tzu is the only dog that we need to have. Like we what need that diversity of life. But it is, it's something I've what heard many times in my yeah. life. I don't know if other people have heard it, but I've heard it many times. And so how do we, how do we do better? Yeah. And how do we deal with that erosion of rights? Right? Like, I guess part of that, Tom, is that we need to know our history. <laughs> yeah, we need to know our history. And, you know, we need, as a community, we need to make sure that our voices are being heard. Um, I think increasingly, we're relying on, you know, this queer industrial complex, all of these organizations with executive directors and corporate style management practices, that is not our community voice. And we have kind of sacrificed our voice to those folks. The folks that are showing up to dinners when Joe Biden comes to town, the folks that have ministers on their speed dial, those are not the voices of our community. And they have increasingly occupied that space. 
Uh, and if a new government comes to power and all of this money comes to a halt, uh, we're going to hear from that executive director class, um, and uh, it's not going to be pretty. So we need to reclaim our community voices, I think. Uh, and so we need to get back to grassroots, is that what you're saying? Grassroots, and, you know, I think we need to organize a different kind of pride. Mm-hmm. Wow. And is that possible? Yes, absolutely. All I mean, right. the No Pride in Policing Coalition is organizing an alternative march on June 25th. Oh, tell us more about yeah, it then. They're, yeah. they're meeting at Grange Park, which is where uh, the Pride started in 1981. That's where the crowd met. Uh, they marched in front of 52 Division, the police station that did the bath raids. And the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a group of drag queen nuns, <laughs> yeah. performed in exorcism on the police station. <laughs> So uh, that's what uh, No Pride in Policing is going to do this uh, coming June 25th. You can check out their website, noprideinpolicing.ca, and uh, their advertisements there. They have a bunch of teach-ins they're doing throughout the month that are all free on Zoom, so you can check that out. Fantastic. What's that website again? noprideinpolicing.ca, all one word. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. And Jeffrey, last word for you. you. What are you up to? What are you hoping for? I'm going to follow Tom's pride. <laughs> I think that's what I'm hopeful for. Um, uh, yeah, if we could have more, as I talked about diversity, but if we could have more Toms in this world, I'd be quite grateful, actually. Yeah. And maybe more conversations, yeah. you know, amongst people that maybe don't always talk to one another, you Absolutely. know? I mean, we're hoping that that's what this show can be, um, is to provide, you know, uh, an arena for that kind of conversation. Well, I just want to thank both of you so much. This has been... This has been an incredible hour of conversation and blessings to you both as you go forth and participate in the transformation of this world into a place of peace and justice and equity and love Mm -hmm. and fun and joy. Friends, thank you so much for joining us here on the Radical Reverend Show on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm Christine Smaller, the temp here, and I thank again my wonderful guests, Jeffrey Dale and Tom Hooper. See you next week. Deserves music, sweet music. Everyone deserves music, sweet music. Seven in the morning, step on the floor Walking through the kitchen and you open the door Ain't much left in the bottle of juice Because the seeds that you plant never reproduce Computer's still running but your mind is cracked Because the plans that you made never came to pass Now you recognize and the time is hard When you're trying to take a bite at your ATM card Everyone deserves music
We've been listening to Everyone Deserves Music by the incredible Michael Fronte and Spearhead. And next up is Dr. Mao's Rock and Roll Brothers Lunch and Party. Sisters, 